Thank you. Let me add my welcome to you this morning. Uh, I noticed that I'm very grateful for the way Ian led, and he mentioned his prayer uh, that we're moving forward with uh, Tim Diapa. The elders met with him yesterday afternoon. I put an email out for the church members. If you don't have access to email, let me know, and I've got some copies printed off. We're going to invite Tim and Beth and his family to come and spend the weekend with us on the 5th and 6th of October. That's Saturday and Sunday, which is what's called in technical terms, Preach with a View. Um, and that will then following that, we'll have a church members' meeting on the Tuesday, the 8th of October, and the agenda will be published soon. Very grateful for your prayers, and very grateful to God for the way he appears to be leading us with great clarity. That's what we want, clarity. Thy will be seen, thy will be done. And that's what we continue to pray for, so thank you for that. Um, just to mention about tonight, the evening service tonight, we're going to be meeting in the lounge. <clears throat> I've been asked by the, uh, some, by the elders and also by some members to say, can we have a series on doctrine? That doesn't sound terribly exciting. I guarantee you it is. We're going to be beginning by looking at the God who is one, three persons in one God, the Holy Trinity. It's mind-blowing um, and glorious, glorious to actually try and... We can't get a head round who the God we worship is, which is a good thing. But we do discover as he's revealed himself to us as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, he is altogether lovely. He is literally altogether lovely and, worship, and worthy of all of our adoration. And once you grasp that it means that God is Trinity and if you're in Christ, it just changes you radically deeply. So please come this evening as we look at the God with whom we have to do. We're in Romans, so the, we're going to look at that passage that Ian read to us. And I wanted to include verse 14 of chapter 1 right through to 2, 1, which I hope will become apparent. So ask God's help. Father, this is an amazingly wonderful letter, but it, there is some harsh <coughs> truth here. But as we reflected last week, harsh truth is much better than sweet deceit. So, Lord, speak truth to our hearts and lives this morning. Because as Jesus himself said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So do that freedom-liberating work in all of our hearts and souls this morning as we hear God's truth spoken to us from God's word in the power of God's spirit. Amen. Are we not sometimes stunned... By the sheer beauty of creation. There are some stunning, beautiful sights to be seen in the creation, are there not? He is literally indescribable. The creation is absolutely glorious and indescribably wonderful and beautiful. And at the same time, are we not horrified at the brokenness and the vileness? of man's inhumanity to man. Do we not see when there are great disasters hit the world, do we not see both the best and the worst of humanity at the same time? How do you account for these twin realities? 
the beauty of creation and the brokenness of our lives. What's your explanation for the world in which we live that is both at the same time as I say stunningly beautiful and horribly broken? I think everybody recognises those two realities. And everybody recognises, whether they're Christian or not, that is not how things should be. You listen to our sociologists, our scientists, our politicians, all of them have their theories as to why the world is both beautiful and broken. And all of them offer their solutions. It's interesting you get that particularly at times of an election, and we may well be on the cusp of one. And there seems to be the answer that the scientists, sociologists and politicians have is throw money at the problem. We need better education. We need a better health service. We need stronger police forces. We need to reinforce those resources. And of course, all of those things are right and proper. But despite the billions of pounds that is going to be invested, hopefully, in education and, and the medical profession and in the police forces, what will really change? What difference will it really make? What explanation does God give us in his word, for those twin realities, the brokenness and the beauty. And, and what is he doing to restore creation to the way it is meant to be? The answer to those questions is what we discover in Paul's letter to the Romans. Last week we saw how passionate Paul was to committed to preach the gospel. And we began to see why he was so eager to preach the gospel. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. I am a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. That's why I'm so eager. He doesn't tell us why in those verses, but he does tell us why he's so eager in the following three verses. And he gives us three reasons why he is so eager to preach the gospel. Number one, first reason he gives us is because the gospel is the power of God. Verse 16, which we looked at last week, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The second reason is in verse 17. It's the righteousness of God. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The third reason is in verse 18, which if you're following in the ESV, begins for the wrath of God. So this for, verse 16, I'm not why I'm so eager to preach the gospel. For it is the power of God, 16. Eager to preach the gospel, 4.17. It's the righteousness of God. So eager to preach the gospel, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Just let me 
pass a brief comment on verse 18. Godlessness refers to how we as human beings relate to God. By and large, apart from God's sovereign grace, we are godless. What that means is we function as if there was no God. We are godless in our behaviours. We treat God as if he's a non-entity or even non-existent. That's what godlessness means. Wickedness means how we treat one another, how we relate to one another. We don't love God and we don't love neighbour. And Paul says that's one of the reasons why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to everyone. Because everyone apart from God's grace is under God's wrath, which is a terrible place to be. And so we began to look at the first two reasons last week, and this Sunday we want to look at his third reason, the wrath of God against us. And as we look at this passage, there are three massive lessons that the Apostle Paul wants us to grasp here. They are, number one, in the beauty of creation, in the beauty of his creation, we see God's glory, that we deliberately refuse to acknowledge to our own destruction. Second, number two, in the brokenness of our lives, we see his wrath, so that we flee from the wrath to come. And three, in the crucifixion of his son, we see his love, so that we are saved by God, from God, for God. Creation shows us his glory that we refuse to acknowledge. The brokenness of our lives show us his wrath so that we flee from the worst to come. In order that we are, we, in the crucifixion we see his love so that we are saved by God, from God. So let's work through this together. In the beauty of creation we see God's glory that we refuse to acknowledge to our own destruction. Psalm 19, 1 through 6, let me read those to you. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They, they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Every day and every night, 24-7, 365, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. That's, church, that's a Bible word, the glory of God. Let me just open that up for you. What does it mean? What does the glory of God mean? It's a phrase we use. Everything God does is for his glory. And we are called to glorify him. What does it mean, the glory of God? Three things the Bible explains to us what the glory of God means. His weight his wonder and his worth. His weight. He is the most significant supreme being. And he calls us to, for 
us to relate to him as the most important being in our lives. We had some deck chairs. Um, well, we do still have deck chairs, but we, we had some deck chairs that we really liked, and we'd put them out in the garden, and we'd sit in the garden, and um, we'd enjoy sitting in the garden and chatting and talking and laughing and all the rest of it. One day, though, they'd been in and out. We, we didn't bring them in when it was raining all the time. We just left them out there, you know, because it's, oh, it's raining. Should I get the... No, let's leave them out there. And one day, to my wife's great humour, we discovered that the deck chair couldn't take my glory anymore. <laughs> I fell through the middle of it. Ha, 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 went Mrs. Kane. And then hers went as well. And ha, 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 went I. It couldn't take our glory. It couldn't take our weight. And, the, and, and God's glory means his weight. He, has, he is the most significant <laughs> being. And we treat him as if he was nothing. His wonder. Notice what Paul says in chapter 120 of Romans. His invisible qualities... And his divine nature. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, which he, ex- which he opens up, touches on, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. His wonder, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature. In other words, the the being who created this beautiful cosmos is beyond our ability to comprehend. He is literally too wonderful for words. We cannot... He, that's why we sang. One of the reasons why we sang, I didn't choose the song, but it's a great song. He literally is indescribable. He is too wonderful for words. And the creation invites us Day in, day out, night in, night out, every day, every week, every month, every year to behold him who is beyond our minds to conceive and comprehend. He is too wonderful. And we treat him as if he's nothing. His weight, his wonder, his worth. He alone, therefore is worthy of our gratitude and our praise and our worship and our service. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. This is a terrible indictment. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. We know he is worthy of all of our praise and adoration. We know that instinctively. We don't need someone to tell us God himself has told us in his creation. Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. My dog understands better how to glorify God than I do by nature. The birds sing. They're telling us, praise him. He's worthy of all of your praise. 
and we don't. But we know we should. That's the point. Every day we are being called by his beautiful creation to worship our creator. And we know we should, 119, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God. And every day we choose to live as if there was no God. Look at verse 18, we suppress the truth that we know. We push it down. We function as if there was no God. One of the games I like to play with my kids, in this, with my kids and my grandkids in the swimming pool is keep, the, keep the, the beach ball under the water. Just, just push it down. You push it, well, it's difficult to push it down because it keeps popping up. And so does this truth that we choose to suppress and put down. We suppress the truth we know, 118, and we exchange the truth we know about God for the lie, verse 25. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Every day we choose to worship and serve created things rather than the creator. The indictment of God Almighty against the human race is that every one of his idol worshippers were idolaters. And therefore, every day, we are signing our own death warrant. And so, therefore, we are all without excuse. That's how verse 20 ends. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In the beauty of creation, we see God's glory that we willfully refuse to acknowledge to our own destruction. Therefore, in the brokenness of our lives, we see his wrath so that we might flee from the wrath to come. One of my favorite parables that Jesus tells is what we what we call wrongly the parable of the prodigal son singular that's not what Jesus calls the parable as I mentioned last week he calls it the parable of the man who had two sons in the parable of the man who had two sons when the younger son came to his father and said in effect I wish you were dead so that I can get my hands on my share of your money, but I can't wait for you to die, to hurry up and die, so give me what's mine now. That's what the younger son said to his father. How did the father, in the parable that Jesus tells, respond to his son, who clearly hated his dad that much? I wish you were dead. I want what's mine now. Give me mine now. I can't wait for you to die. How did the father, whose son had a death wish against him, treat his son? Jesus tells us, so he, the father, divided his property between them. In other words, the wise, loving, heartbroken father 
gave his son exactly what his son desired. You want to treat me as if I'm dead? And you want my money now? The money that's coming to you, you want it now. Okay? He gave him over to the life he wanted to live. The love of the father was revealed in the father's wrath by the father giving him his son, his heart's desire. He gave him what he desired. That's the point. Three times over in this letter, in, this, in, in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul tells us that is exactly how God, our creator, is treating us. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the, de- for the degrading of their bodies with one another. The degrading of their bodies. We dehumanize ourselves. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones against nature. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. This is the most clear and the most controversial and the most comprehensive passage in all of Scripture that explains why our society is like it is. It's also one of the most controversial and comprehensive passages in the entire Bible that talks about sexual immorality and same-sex issues, which is the conversation apart from Brexit that this nation is talking about. Now I do not intend to open it up here for you this morning. I will and I have provided to the home group leaders more teaching for those who are following the preaching series in your home groups to discuss in your home group should you wish to look at this. But that's at the discretion of the home group leaders. I will add only one comment. Our children in our schools are being given sex education classes and they're also being educated about sexual matters and sexual ethics via social media and peer pressure. And two parents told me this week their son, who goes to the upper school in Redbourne, is being encouraged to try anything. Anything goes. And you should experiment any way you wish sexually 
to find out what suits you. That's the world in which we live. But let me just say this. The brokenness of our lives touches every area of each and every part of our lives as individuals and as, uh, as communities, which is what 129 through 32 shows us. Are we not... Why is it on the news every day we get how the stock market is doing and how our investments are doing and will we have enough to live on when we retire and all of those things, we are money, not just sex obsessed, we're money obsessed. We are experiencing and we, we are petrified of economic disaster. Why? Because we are driven by greed. Verse 29, they have become with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Greed is driving our nation's agenda. Is it not? We are experiencing social disintegration by our violence. 129, knife crime is... Sadiq Khan was on uh, the Andrew Marr show today... And he's being asked what he's doing about the tidal wave of knife crime that's hitting London. We're driven by violence. We're kill- our kids are killing each other on our streets. 129. We're experiencing family breakdowns driven by our disrespect for authority. 130. They disobey their parents just sounds like he's a naughty little boy boys will be boys girls will be girls this is this is this is the human heart hating any authority over it at all we're experiencing relationship breakdowns driven by our utter selfishness and we know look at 132 we know it's wrong But we keep on keeping on despite knowing that people who do such things deserve death. 132. But I've repeatedly used the word we to make this point. That that can't, that's not right, is it? I shouldn't use the word we to describe you folks in this chapter, should I? Because Paul doesn't, does he? If you look at how Paul explains the gospel and explains why the wrath of God, he only uses the word them or they or there. In 118, right the way through to 132, Paul is talking about them. Verse, 20, verse 19, since what we known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For although, verse 21, they knew God, they neither glorified him of God. Their thinking became futile, although they claimed. Therefore God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. So Paul is talking about them. Not us. Not us. Not we. We're not like that, are we? No. Of course we're not like that. It's them out there. That's the problem, isn't it? 
It's them lot that's making a mess of our world and our society. It doesn't apply to us nice, respectable folks in here in church, surely, does it? So we're okay. It's them that need the gospel. I spoke to someone once in the doors when I was going in door to door with John Francis. Knocked on this guy's door and he was berating the state of the nation, the state of society and the state of all those horrible druggies down on the estate. And they need the gospel. I don't because I'm all right. Mind closed. Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. This is brilliant evangelism, by the way. If you want to know, Paul gives a, in his gospel exposition, he is functioning as an, an, a brilliant evangelist. And he's doing exactly what Jesus did. And he's doing exactly what Nathan did. He's, he's showing us how to preach the gospel. I'm calling this the Nathan hook. Now, Nathan was the prophet that God sent to King David after King David had committed adultery, murder, and lied. And what happens is Nathan goes to King David, as God had directed him, to confront him over his sin. How does he get him to confess his sin? It's brilliant. He tells David a story about a man who comes into town and his host, who's a rich man, got plenty and can offer anything he wants, takes a poor man's lamb, which is a pet lamb, belonging to this other family, a poor family. It's all they had, this pet lamb, and they loved it like one of their own kids. And he took their lamb, because he had the authority and power to do so, and he killed the lamb and fed the lamb to his guest. And David rose up and said, that man deserves to die. He's so inflamed, he's so up, his self-righteousness is just on full moat, on, on steroids. He, he kicks off because he hates the fact that this rich man has treated this poor family so, dis- so disgustingly. I, I want this man to die. And what does Nathan say? You're the man. You're the man. It's exactly what Paul is doing to us. It's exactly why Jesus told the parable of the man who had two sons because he's being overheard by self-righteous people who think they're okay. This is why Paul preaches the gospel this way. In the beauty of creation, we see the glory of God that we deny to our own destruction. In the brokenness of our lives, whether that's in your face, I'm going to please myself, younger brother brokenness, or self-righteous indignation, looking down my self-righteous nose at them lot over there, we see the brokenness of our lives, we see the wrath of God, so that by God's grace we might flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, in the crucifixion of his son, 
we see his love so that we are saved by God, from God, for God. To begin to appreciate the value and the wonder and the worth of what Jesus did on the cross, we must feel the shame and the guilt that is ours. For we are guilty as charged of despising the beauty of our Creator. None of us treats God as God deserves. None of us do. And the more shameful and guilt-ridden we feel, the more we will appreciate the value and the wonder and the beauty and the worth of what Jesus did on the cross. And secondly, to feel our desperate need of God's mercy that is available at For all, by faith in Christ at the cross, we must admit that we are rightly deserving of God giving us over to our own life choices and that we are fully responsible for our own self-destruction. We hate taking responsibility for the consequences of our own actions, don't we? We hate it. I was months talking to, to a Christian who was involved in helping um, alcoholics to recover from alcoholism. And he was sharing the gospel with them. And uh, there was a meeting running in his church every Thursday, and one night the guy that had been coming regularly didn't come. He caught up with him on the Friday and said, where were you? He said, well, on the way home from work I popped in to the off-license and bought myself a bottle of whiskey. But if God didn't want me to have the whiskey, he wouldn't have put the the, um, offie there, would he? It was God's fault I got drunk. Really? Who opened the bottle? I did. Who poured it in the glass? I did. Who drank it down? I did. So why is that God's fault? To feel the... To feel our desperate need of God's mercy that is freely, fully available at the cross, we must admit that we're rightly deserving of God's giving us over to our life choices and therefore we are fully responsible for our own destruction and only God can save me from my own self-destruction. And Paul begins to show us something of what Jesus accomplished on the cross that we will, by God's grace, explore more fully in this series. But I tell you this, it will take us all of eternity to begin to grasp what Jesus did on the cross. If you think you understand what Jesus did on the cross, you're living in cuckoo land. You know enough to trust him, but it will take all of eternity to begin to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus did on the cross. One of the things he did, which we'll come to in chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, is to bear in his own body the full and final fury of God's wrath on the behalf of those who would put their faith and trust in him. We sing it, don't we? He bore the wrath. He treated Jesus as I deserve to be treated. He bore the wrath. As I say, it will take eternity to begin to plumb the depths of the magnitude of that.
Why did he do it? And I've jumped to chapter 5, verse 8. To demonstrate his own love for us. In the crucifixion, we see God's love displayed. as That's the clearest, most glorious, God-glorifying revelation that the human race has ever seen of the love of God in the, is in the crucifixion of his Son. As I say, there are other aspects of God's character, his glory that is demonstrated in the crucifixion of his Son, as we will see when we get to 321 31. But we do know the cross most clearly demonstrates God's infinite love for you and me. So let me ask you, have you embraced his love for you? Has his infinite love for you in, in him fully and finally absorbing in himself his wrath against you for spurning his glory as your creator? And have you seen that as your supreme judge has been willing to be punished in your place, that is true love in action. That is divine love. Let me ask you some questions by way of self-examination before we close. How do you know that you have understood and embraced the gospel? I think the most dangerous thing for people who come to church is to think they're Christian, but they're not. They've got Christian ease and Christian behaviours, but there's no Christian heart. That's the most desperately dangerous condition to be in. How do you know you've understood and embraced the gospel? Three things, and if they're true of you, you can leave with joy in your heart. Number one, when the thing that you are most delighting in is worshipping and serving your God and your Redeemer. He is the joy and delight of your heart. Number two, when your deepest longing is to be with him and enjoy him forever. And number three, when you long for others to experience the joy of his wrath-removing joy-filling salvation for themselves. Are you a Christian? In the beauty of his creation, we see God's glory that we refuse to acknowledge to our own destruction. In the brokenness of our lives, we see his wrath, so that by his grace we flee from the wrath to come. And in the crucifixion of his Son, we see his love so that we are saved by God, from God, for God. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Let's pray. Father, please make this gospel the power of God unto salvation to every one of us in this room and every member of our family that is represented in this room and every one of the community in which we are called to serve and share this glorious gospel with, so that you get all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here is love, vast as the ocean.